Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 25 is where we're at this evening as we continue our journey through the book of Isaiah together. Chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27 are often uh, referred to as a mini-apocalypse because they certainly seem to give to us some real clear uh, indication of things regarding the time of what we often refer to as the day of the Lord. And when we refer to that phrase, the day of the Lord, of course, it's referring to a time period which does seem to encompass numerous different events and quite a span uh, of time. It seems to begin with what we often refer to as the rapture of the church or the catching away of the saints as Jesus, the Bible tells us, appears in the air and blasts the trumpet and the church, you and I, his believers, are caught up to meet the Lord in the air which then brings about, of course, the onset of what we often refer to as the time of the tribulation, that seven-year period when God will specifically be orchestrating things uh, among the nation of Israel one last seven-year time period, according to Daniel 9, that God still has to deal specifically with the chosen nation of Israel, as well as we know the time of the tribulation is also a time where the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth uh, upon Christ rejecting humanity and because of their rebellion and resistance to God and his offer of salvation through his son. Uh, That, of course, then culminates at the end of that seven-year period with what we often call the second coming of Christ, uh, where Jesus, you and I together with him, we actually return back to the earth and he actually comes down, touches down upon the earth, different than the rapture where he's, in a sense, in the air and we're caught up to meet him in the air. At the second coming, he comes back. Uh, in a sense, overthrows the Antichrist and one last rebellion of humanity and then comes back, sets up his kingdom and then rules and reigns on this earth uh, for a thousand-year period, often what we refer to as the kingdom age or the millennium, where you and I in our glorified bodies will rule and reign with Christ. When the kingdom age will be happening on the earth, there will be people still born during that time, but it will be a time when the day of man is over and the day of the Lord is fully coming to pass Uh, where God will be orchestrating wonderful things, where Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is finally ruling here on this planet. And then, of course, that time period seems to conclude Revelation 20, 21, and 22, uh, when then at the great white throne judgment, all judgment is finally settled out, and then the new Jerusalem, this holy, eternal, perpetual city, of our eternal dwelling will be something that we then enter into after the kingdom age, to be together with the Lord forever. Now, Isaiah seems to clearly be seeing these things in this section pretty predominantly. We saw in chapter 24 last time he spoke a great deal, uh, numerous things about the tribulation period, much of what we're seeing as well on our study in Revelation on Sunday mornings very similarly. Uh, But again, remember Isaiah, as he's being directed by the Spirit of God, at times he's speaking of something currently, and so on occasions he's got the microscopic view where he's talking about what's happening in the midst of that day in Israel or somewhere in the near future uh, with the Assyrian Empire causing problems and conquering the northern kingdom. Ultimately, we know Babylon then becomes the next world empire. They conquer Judah and the southern kingdom. And so at times, Isaiah is referring to those things and times that were happening among uh, the nations, not only just Israel themselves. But then at other times, he kind of takes that long-range view and the Spirit of God in the next breath or in the next moment kind of goes from microscopic to telescopic, and we look all the way down 
out to things way further out historically. And we see that and we continue to see that pattern as we come into our study this evening and we continue to look at more things clearly where Isaiah is seeing something beyond the present day. And he's going to say a lot about in that day, in other words, looking to a day further out. Now, remember, he had ended chapter 24 after speaking about a lot of the judgment and the harsh things happening on the earth as God was bringing to pass his judgment by saying in the last verse of chapter uh, uh, 24, in verse 23 there, the moon will be disgraced, the sun is shamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders, it's literally the ancients, gloriously. So he just made this declaration about the reign of Yahweh God, the reign of Jehovah, of course, in the person of Jesus there in Jerusalem and this glorious reign of Christ. And it seems that's what then prompts the prophet now in chapter 25, verse 1, to instantly enter into an expression of praise. As he's seeing this glorious reign of Jesus, it seems that kind of overflows from his heart, and he now begins to express some praise and some glory unto the Lord. Chapter 25, verse 1, he says, O Lord, you are my God, and I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So Isaiah senses, notice, almost, you might say, a duty to offer proper glory and adoration and praise unto the Lord because he realizes how worthy he is of it. It's almost as if he senses a debt of obligation, something that is owed. Notice that as he's describing this, he says, I will exalt you, I will praise you, for you have done wonderful things. Again, much like what we see in the Psalms, where you can tell that there's a a willing decision being made here. He says, I will do this. That's an act of of choice. It's, It's a conscious decision. It didn't matter what was going on. Again, remember, in these days, historically, times were not good among the nation of Israel. So if Isaiah was only going to use his circumstances as a determination as to whether or not he should praise the Lord, whether or not he would exalt the Lord, he probably would have not been very inclined to want to celebrate, to want to worship. But what he realizes is it's not about our situation, it's not about the circumstances, it's not about the conditions of the nation or the society or what's going on at the time period historically, because it was a very dark time. It was a time when things were pretty bad morally and spiritually among the nation, but Isaiah's eyes weren't on the circumstances or the situation. His eyes were fixed upon the Lord, and as he had a perspective of who the Lord was and what he had done, he said, Lord, I will exalt you, and I will praise you because you've done wonderful things, Lord. There are reasons just because of who you are. Reminds us of what Paul says in the New Testament where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, and again, I say rejoice. It's almost as if he realizes that you and I sometimes, we need to hear it more than once. Sometimes we just rejoice in the Lord and we kind of just dismiss it. And Paul says, wait a minute, again, just in case you didn't get that. Rejoice in the Lord. And I think there's a really important thing to recognize, whether it's the psalmist or the prophet, that we do certainly see in the Word of God this reference to exercising the will, 
making a conscious decision to say, I will give praise to God, I will exalt him, I will honor him. As he took inventory of the past, the Lord had already done really wonderful things. That's what he says there. Lord, you have done, not you're doing, Lord, you have done wonderful things. And boy, that same thing can be said true of all of our lives. We could make that same declaration. Lord, you have done some really wonderful things in my life. If we don't even think of our own lives, when we look through the, you know, the historicity of the Word of God and all that we've studied thus far from Genesis to this point, we think of the miracles and the mighty, powerful, incredible things that God has done for His people Israel and the ways that He's worked. And it's such an indication that the Lord has done so many wonderful things. And then when we realize beyond that, everything He's done through Jesus Christ for us and everything He's done among the church from the very birth of the church all through history, and then the, all the wonderful things he's done in our lives. The fact that he saved us, the fact that he's changed us and is still changing us, the, the many blessings that have come into our life as the result of knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord, the times he's done miracles and faithful things in our lives where he's honored promises and where he's come through. And all of us certainly should have that as a real basis to say, Lord, you've done wonderful things. Therefore, I will exalt you. I will praise you. Whether my mood is aligning with that or my day says, okay, you should do that, or whether my current circumstances maybe are a little bit more difficult or not what I prefer, I can always say, but Lord, you've done so many wonderful things. And we always have a reason, therefore, to, to praise and to thank him. And look, the wonderful thing is, is as we take inventory of the past and realize he's done past tense wonderful things, that's what should give us encouragement and faith to realize that the Lord will do wonderful things in the days ahead. And to realize that he's a God who doesn't change. And because he's done wonderful things, we can know he will do wonderful things. He says in verse 1 as well, your counsels of old. Now that phrase, counsels of old, could be a reference to his plans or his promises. So it could even be somewhat perhaps an, an indication of the written word of God. Your counsels of old. Uh, some translations render that his plans uh, the idea there, when we think of the counsels of old of God, certainly the word of God is very applicable in that statement. And, and as he looks at the reality of God's word or just the, the plans and the promises of God as a whole, he says of those things, they are faithfulness and truth. The idea is that they are faithful and true. In other words, what the prophet is declaring is, Lord, all of your plans all of your promises, all of your word, it's always right and it's always reliable. It's true. God's word is always right. God's plan, it's always right. What God does, it's always the right thing. And it's incredibly faithful as well because God is a God of faithfulness, so it's incredibly reliable. God's word will always prove to be reliable. Every promise of God, it always proves to be reliable. And that's some of the wonderful things that we see him do from time to time as he comes through with his promise and he shows it. And everything that God does is both right as well as it's very reliable and his, full of his faithfulness and it's always true and right. He goes on, verse 2, to say, For you, Lord, have made a city a ruin, a fortified city, a well-defended city, trying to keep itself secure, 
a palace of foreigners to become a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. So look, God's faithfulness even comes to pass in the fact that he describes there, verse 2, even a city of people, and the picture there in verse 2 is a city in rebellion to the Lord who's trying to fortify itself, who's trying to protect itself. He says, Lord, even a city of people that's rebelled against you and think they have a strong position and that they can fortify themselves and they're going to succeed in their pride and in their rebellion, that God can override the proud actions of men. And that if men are opposing the will of God or the way of God, because God's counsels are always faithfulness and truth, God will always have his way in the end. And that God is able in his faithfulness and in his ways to ruin the plans of men, to cause what men are doing that may be wrong to no longer exist. And if necessary, he's able to not only cause it to cease, but to stop it from ever even being rebuilt. He says there, Lord, you are able to make sure even that it will never be rebuilt. So God can not only stop something, God can keep something from ever even being resurrected or rebuilt or restored if it's not in alignment with his ultimate plan and purpose. He goes on verse 3 to say, therefore, the strong people, those with great strength, prominence, people with power and position, he says, they shall glorify you. And the city of the terrible nations will fear you. So here Isaiah speaks of how no matter how strong or how terrible people are, he says they all, even the strongest of men and the most terrible of nations, the most wicked of human beings who in terrible ways do terrible, horrible things to people. We're seeing some of that now in the Middle East. But he says, even the most terrible of peoples, the strongest of human beings, the most powerful of individuals, they can and will be humbled by the greater strength of the Lord, that God is able by his authority to humble humanity. The strongest and even the most wicked of people will come to fear God's awesome power and will ultimately give him honor, right? The Bible tells us in Philippians that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so though there may be resistance now and terrible, wicked things now, men have always lived in rebellion to God. Isaiah says, Lord, even the strongest of men are one day going to glorify you and acknowledge who you are. And he says, even the most terrible of nations who are striking fear in the hearts of people, one day they are going to be struck with fear as they face their maker, the almighty God and realize that they're going to be held account in judgment for the terrible things that they've done. Verse 4, he goes on to say, For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge in the storm. There's a great little Bible memory phrase for this week, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall, and you will reduce the noise of the aliens. Now, we're not talking about extraterrestrial here. We're talking about foreigners. That's the idea there. I know there's a lot of that idea floating around. He's talking about those who are foreigners from outside of Israel, the foreigners invading Assyria, Babylon, the nations that would come against them. He says, you can reduce the noise of those invading foreign enemies 
as the heat in a dry place and the heat in the shadow of a cloud. And the song of these terrible ones, these invaders, will be diminished, Isaiah says. So notice he describes there in verses 4 and 5 how the Lord will come to the aid of the weak. To those who are overburdened or overloaded, he describes there in verse 4, those who are poor, that is lacking adequate resources. Those who are needy, they have deep need in their life, he describes. And in their neediness, he says, it causes them to be in distress, that is to feel very overwhelmed and overburdened. And what does he say the Lord does for those in such conditions? He says, you will be a strength to them. You'll provide strength to them. And how wonderful that God is so compassionate that in the time when we are weak or overburdened, that God supplies his strength in those occasions. Paul recognized that. Paul talked about how God gives power to the weak. Isaiah is going to say later on that God gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases their strength. And he says, those who wait on the Lord, he's going to say Isaiah 40, will renew their strength. Again, that God supplies power and supplies strength in our weakest times, in our neediest moments, when we are really getting distressed and overwhelmed and overburdened, the Lord can supernaturally strengthen us in the midst of our weakness. Paul said, when I'm weak, that's when I'm actually the strongest. And how wonderful to get to experience that, whether it's in the condition of our soul or just in some circumstance in our life, that he has been a strength to those who have deep need. And even more than that, he says, and you've also been a refuge in the storm and a shade from the heat. And again, a refuge speaks of a shelter. That is a refuge that's a shelter from a storm's difficulty. As the storm is beating up and ravaging, a refuge is a place of shelter from that difficulty and the adversity of the storm, and so therefore it provides shelter to endure the hard circumstances. And he says, that's what you are, Lord. You're a shelter that when everything in the world is beating me up and I feel like I am being tossed around in a storm and I just cannot get my bearings and I'm being overwhelmed and it seems that everything is being ravaged and ripped apart like my life's become a tornado, Lord, you become a refuge of protection and safety. And again, what does that refuge do? It provides relief in the midst of the storm. Look, God may not always take us out of the storm. He may not always, you know, instantly get us out of the storm, but what he will do is he'll show up in the storm. And he can be a refuge in the storm to give us relief, to shield us so that we can weather the storm and not be crushed and conquered by it. He says in verse 5, you reduce the noise of the aliens and the song of the terrible ones, he said there, will be diminished. Again, the idea is, Again, notice the noise of the enemy, the song of the enemy, because what does an enemy always try and do? Intimidate, right? That's what any enemy does, to intimidate with words, with taunting, singing taunting songs, the noise of ridicule and mockery and questioning, right? That's the voice of the enemy. We just, this past Monday, when we were doing one of our studies with our, our, our basic school, we were talking about the first time the devil's voice shows up in the word of God, Genesis chapter three, what is he doing? He's posing questions. The first time we hear the devil's voice in the Bible, he's trying to get humanity to question God, to question God's nature, God's goodness, God's plan, to get humanity to question the word of God. And generally, 
Whether it is that way specifically or just the devil in his lying whisper, he's always trying to generate questions, to cause confusion, to cause doubt, to cause fear. It's one of his intimidation tactics to try and do things, to really just kind of bully us in the way that he often does spiritually. And whether it's a natural enemy or our spiritual enemy, often that intimidation factor is that verbal mounting, you know, mocking and, and kind of whispering those kind of things. And look, when the enemy is invading and attacking, how wonderful the Bible says that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. And one of the ways that he can do that is he can reduce the noise of the enemy. And he can silence the lying mouth of the terrible one so that his voice is diminished in our life. That's why the Bible tells us to submit to God and to resist the devil and he shall flee from us. But please notice there, too many people hyper-spiritualize, you got to resist the devil, resist the devil. And, and, and often act like they have power over the devil. And I command you devil and I demand you devil. Look, when the devil knocks on my door, I don't answer it. I'd prefer Jesus to do that. That's why the first part of the verse says, submit to God, then resist the devil, and then the devil will flee from you. Because the bottom line is, if I try and take on the devil myself, I'm toast. <laughs> He's duped me and destroyed me and messed me up many times before. Again, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, the Lord rebuke you, not I rebuke you. Too many Christians get a little too caught up in their spiritual you know, uh, thinking that they have something, look, the Lord rebuke you. It's the authority of Jesus that drives back the enemy. The devil is no match for God, but for you and I, he's a big bully that we don't want to try and take on in our own humanity. It's only through the authority of the Lord and the power of the Lord. And so we want to submit ourselves to God so that he can silence the noise of the lying voice of the devil and the taunting and, and, and what he does to get us distracted or confused or off track or discouraged or fearful. And look, I find in my life many times the way that that works is by submitting myself to God. The way that God often silences the voice of the devil is when I allow myself to hear the voice of God more. Because his voice, like the voice of many waters, the Bible describes it, if you've ever gotten near a waterfall or if, you know, just close to the roar of powerful water, you can't hear anything else. So as we're seeking to hear the voice of the Lord, it kind of is a way that God diminishes the voice of the enemy. And we hear the truth of God's voice and it diminishes the lying voice of the enemy when he's coming against us. Verse six, he says, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Now, what he's describing here, again, this idea of this atmosphere of feasting. Remember, feasts oftentimes when they show up you know, in the Word of God, especially feasts where it's talking about there's fatness and marrow. As we've said before, you have to understand from an ancient culture, that wasn't an insult. That was an indication you were wealthy. <laughs> you were doing well. Because most people had just enough to live hand-to-mouth, day-to-day, and so they kind of stood a little more lean. They didn't have the affluence and the extra, and, and like you and I tonight, are going to go home and put down two donuts and a bag of chips because I can't go to sleep because I drank too much coffee and I'm up till 10.30 at night or 11 o'clock at night. So typically, when people had fatness and these excessive things, it was an indication of 
of prominence and affluence. And so this is a picture here of festivity and feasts of the best wine, choice wine and choice meat, typically were associated with celebratory events. So feasts of celebration were typically times of like coronations of a king, a wedding, remembering maybe a special event, the feast we see in Israel. And it's interesting that he describes these pictures here of this festive celebration associated with being excited because as we think about Jesus coming and ruling and reigning on the earth as he should, not only overthrowing all of his enemies and setting up his throne, but when Jesus comes and rules and overthrows all the enemies on the earth, the environment he's going to bring is going to be an incredibly joyful, pleasurable, celebratory environment. That's what the Lord's going to bring. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom of God is not ultimately about eating or drinking, but it says righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in the same way we enjoy a marriage supper of the Lamb, it seems up in heaven as we're there tucked away safely during the tribulation, when we come back, it is going to be a wonderful celebratory time because finally the true right king is reigning. And so it's going to be a reason to be full of joy and to celebrate. He says, verse 7, and he, notice that's capitalized, referring to the Lord, he will destroy on this mountain the surface of all the covering cast over all people and the veil, interesting term, and the veil that is spread over all nations. So the Lord, when he comes, notice, will eradicate the veil, he says, that's spread over all nations. When the Bible speaks of a veil, whether it was a wedding veil, and it's spoken of in a symbolic sense, spiritually as well, a veil covers to obscure the view. And the, the Bible uses this idea, God's word speaks of a spiritual veil that causes an obscurity so that people don't see God clearly the way that they should. And it's interesting here that he speaks of how God will come and destroy and he will remove the veil that has been spread over, interesting, he says, all nations. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaking of the Jews' struggle in trying to find proper relationship with God through understanding of the Old Testament and their mosaic ways in Judaism and the blindness that they struggle with because of that to see Jesus Christ as their Messiah Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the Bible describes how in trying to relate to God through the law, through Judaism, there's this veil of hindrance to see proper relationship with God clearly. But when one sees that Christ came to fulfill the law and that Jesus is the Savior and Messiah, he says that when one turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. And all of a sudden, they see it clearly. Oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, the, the Old Testament comes to light in incredible ways. And now they realize from their Old Testament, that's, that speaks of the Messiah. That speaks of Jesus. And how when one turns to the Lord, this spiritual veil is taken away. You know, in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul speaks of all unsaved souls struggling with this same kind of condition, whether Jew, Gentile, whatever nation, saying this, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, 
whose minds the God of this age, referring to the devil, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine on them. So again, the Bible teaches this idea that when someone chooses to not believe in the gospel message, in the truth of God's salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, when someone does not believe, it tells us that the God of this age, Satan, has the ability, in a sense, to bring a degree of spiritual blindness over their eyes. And that like a veil, someone, in a sense, you, we're sharing the gospel and thinking, can't you see it? The reality is, no, <laughs> they can see it. Until they choose to believe, that veil is not lifted away from them, and there is a degree of spiritual blindness. That's why at times you think to yourself, I, that was one of the best times I ever shared the gospel. How could I not close that spiritual deal? And you share, and it seems like it's so clear and so evident, and, and at the end of it, you say, would you like to pray to receive Jesus Christ? No. What? Are you blind? Yes. <laughs> That's the problem. The God of this age has blinded their eyes because they do not want to believe. But how amazing that when one chooses to believe, again, we often think, if I can just see, then I'll believe. God says, when you believe, then you actually see. That's why Jesus said no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And is that not true? When you chose to believe, when I chose to believe, all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, I see it now. And the veil is taken away and the blindness is lifted again because of that willingness to put faith in what the Lord has done. So again, interesting, he describes how the Lord's gonna come and take away this veil. Verse eight, he says, and he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the rebuke of his people the idea there, the rebuke of his people speaks of the disgrace the resistance of the people of god he will one day take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken again look at these beautiful things that there's a coming time the bible says when death which is the great enemy of all of humanity because Death is always swallowing up another victim, right? The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once. Ever since Adam's fall, we have all been destined to die. We are born and then gradually are dying the rest of our lives until we reach the point of our death. So death is the great dreaded enemy of humanity. It's the fear of mankind. And the Bible tells us there is coming a day when God will swallow up death forever that God himself will eradicate the death experience. He will take death away from humanity once for all. You know, Paul in the New Testament quotes this phrase from Isaiah here, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, saying, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, that as we receive our glorified immortal body, Paul says, then shall be brought to pass that saying which is written, Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. That is, death will never be experienced anymore when we enter into that eternal dimension. The Bible tells us as well in Revelation 21 regarding the time of the eternal forever state after the kingdom age, 
he says that in that permanent eternal condition, Revelation 21 says, there shall be no more death. Man, is that not going to be a glorious time? To never have to worry what your own death experience is going to be like? Listen, I'm not afraid about what happens after I die, but I'm not thrilled about the process. You don't get to practice it. You don't know how your exit ramp process is going to happen. And not to mention how many times we've gone through the pain and the difficulty and the hardship of another death and the loss of someone and how amazing that because of what God has done and because Jesus Christ has come and bring light and he has abolished the death process that one day death, the experience of death, will never be experienced again. How incredible that's going to be. What God has destined for us. And he says, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Again, tears are the byproduct of pain. Whether it's physical pain or whether it's emotional pain, that's what causes the release of tears as God's created us and hardwired us to do this. It's a release of the body experiencing pain, physical or emotional. And sometimes the emotional pain is even way more painful and tragic and hard to deal with than physical pain at times. But again, to think about, again, the mercy and compassion of God, there is coming a time, he says here, when all pain will be removed forever. Not only death being removed forever, but imagine the experiences of pain. And life is filled with pain, is it not? Part of living is pain. You can't escape it on the earth. You're naive if you think that part of the earthly existence will not be painful. It's part of the fall. Pain is a part of being on this planet in all different ways. But how wonderful, thanks be to God, there's coming a time when God is going to eradicate pain. Pain no more. No more pain in your body. No more pain emotionally from hardships and traumatic things and difficult things that we go through. And notice God himself, it says, is going to be the one wiping away the tears from all faces. What a beautiful description. Here's all-powerful, almighty God. Imagine the mighty, powerful hand of God. How powerful is God's hand and, and God tenderly wiping away tears from human beings' faces. I mean, what the, the analogy there is incredible, the, the power of God, but yet so compassionate, condescending. And again, if God cares that much about removing people's pain, shouldn't we be a little bit more interested in being compassionate when someone's in pain and not dismissing their pain, but actually caring and being concerned about their pain? And if we're gonna know that God's doing that one day, that we would step in and be with someone Again, the Bible tells us God is close to the brokenhearted, and we should be close to the brokenhearted, that he heals the brokenhearted, and that we should care about the same things. What a beautiful picture of the nature of our God here, wiping away tears from the faces of humanity, the great comforter, God himself. And it will be said in that day, verse 9, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So he describes here that there is coming in that time this awareness where 
God's reality will no longer be interfered with in any way at all. He's describing a time when there will be no more interference that hinders people from seeing God properly and sensing who God is and what God's doing. He says, there is coming a time, it will be said in that day, when it will be said, behold, this is our God. This is the Lord. Again, the Jews will be saying that when Jesus returns, Zechariah 12 says that the spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out upon Jesus and they will look upon the Jews and they will look upon him whom they pierced. And they'll recognize after a time of great mourning and grief, they'll realize this Jesus of Nazareth, this is our God. This is him. We've been waiting for him. And now, even after our rejection of him in his first coming, now he's come back and now he's come back to save us. And how they'll go from grieving over rejecting him to in that day actually recognizing him that they've been waiting for this Messiah who already had come once, but now he's come back again to save them and that they could be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And again, how wonderful to realize that there will be coming a time when God's presence and God's work will be known in such an undeniable way that there'll no longer be hindrance and interference. Is this God? He says in that, they're going to say, this is God. No question. How awesome is that going to be to be able to have such an experience, not only when he's here literally and presently in our midst and we're among him, but to be able to know when something is truly God and to, to be able to say, man, we've waited on him, we've trusted in him, and he's intervened, he's come through. We waited for him, and this is the Lord. This is really the Lord in this now. And to be able to have those experiences and to be able to celebrate with joy when the Lord's presence has worked in a way or it's so evident that God is in something and here the prophet is seeing this and again, celebrating the very reality of it. Now, verses 10 through 12, he goes back to speaking of the Lord dealing with his enemies. He says, for on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down in a, as a refuse heap. Now, here he's using Moab. We saw the judgment against the nations, chapters 13 through chapter 23. He uses Moab kind of as a symbolic reference for all the nations who were enemies of the Lord at that time. He's using really a picture here of God judging all his enemies. And he says, he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim and he will bring down, notice, their pride together with the trickery of their hands, the fortress of the high fort of your walls. He will bring down and lay low and bring down to the ground, down to the dust. So it's a picture of God in judgment against the enemies who have rebelled against him quickly and very swiftly bringing a humbling process to them. The problem, again, he indicates, is so often the problem when God must deal with us more sternly or severely, is God bringing down their pride, their pride. Again, the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud, that when someone exalts themselves, they'll be humbled. And the same is true with a person or a nation, and here, because of their great pride, God's enemies will be humbled. And the picture he gives here, like a swimmer, spreading out his hands, reaching the swim. It seems to be the idea there, the best I can put together with that, is just like a swimmer takes strokes, that it's only like a swimmer going to take God one stroke to deal with his enemies. 
Like one swimming stroke, that's all it's going to take God. Just one stroke and it's over with. That God can that quickly humble his enemies, whether it's a nation who's brought harm to his people or resisted his plans. Again, God bringing them down low and humbling them. Uh, in many ways, we saw and talked about this even as last week, that God's going to do this with the great Babylon, the, the, the commercial system in the last days. In one day, it says God's going to just bring down the whole commercial system. And people will be shocked how quickly God was able to bring it down. Chapter 26, he goes on to say, and in that day, there's our phrase again, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, and God will appoint salvation for walls and for bulwarks. Open the gates, he says, verse 2, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. So again, he's talking about something Isaiah says, in that day in the land of Judah, that there will be this not only rebellious group, but also a strong city that God, he says, will appoint for salvation for even its walls and bulwarks. So uh, is Isaiah seeing here? I, I don't know. Could he potentially be seeing that holy city, the new Jerusalem, perhaps coming down and how it was characterized by the salvation of God, even its walls and bulwarks characterized by God's wonderful salvation to which the city would then be saying, open the gates that the righteous who keeps truth may enter in. And again, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the Bible does describe how there will be no one but those who are righteous within it. Everyone who's cowardly and evil and unbelieving will be completely, ultimately eradicated so they will no longer have access. And how wonderful that's going to be to finally have a dwelling place with nothing but constant, continual righteousness that no one can defile, that no enemy invader or no person's going to rebel against the authority of the Lord, how amazing it's going to be to have the gates open and only the righteous that keep truth are allowed to enter in. And then, of course, this beautiful phrase is here from Isaiah. Many know these. Isaiah 26.3 says of God, and you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, a shortened version of Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. Now, interesting there, that everlasting strength phrase there. The Hebrew also could be translated rock, where we think of the idea of God being a rock, a stable uh, thing for us to build our lives upon. This is where the hymn actually, Rock of Ages, we believe, stems from. Rock of Ages, cleft for thee, let me hide myself in thee. Uh, from these phrases here of the great peace that God can bring as the everlasting, perpetual rock, the stability and the strength he gives. But here Isaiah makes this proclamation, Lord, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed upon you because he's trusting in you. He's depending upon you as that strong, solid, everlasting rock that's immovable, that always remains the same, that never changes that's reliable and dependable in God's great faithfulness as he is in all of his nature and his power and his promises to us. But I love how Isaiah says that, God, you will keep in perfect peace. The Hebrew there literally is shalom, shalom. So what he's saying there is, Lord, you shall keep in peace, peace, technically. And that was a very Hebraic way when they use repetition to emphasize intensity. Lord, you will keep... 
in peace, peace. The idea is an absolute version of peace in the most intense, complete way possible. Perfect peace. That's why the translator renders it that way. You shall keep in perfect peace. And notice, one is not keeping themselves in peace. He says, Lord, you keep us peaceful. You give to us peace. Notice, peace is not something that we work up within ourselves. I'm trying to be a little bit more peaceful. I'm trying to calm myself down. I'm trying to settle myself down. You're going to be trying that for a long time. (laughs) Because our hearts get very agitated and our minds get very confused and we get into turmoil and things work us up. But God says, I'll keep you peaceful with a perfect peace because it's a supernatural peace. It's a peace, the Bible says, that passes understanding. That is, it bypasses the intellect. It's a peace that makes no sense. That's what Philippians 4 talks about. It's a peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus because it's a peace that bypasses human understanding because it's a supernatural peace. It's a peace that God gives to us by keeping us peaceful as the God of peace, who we know is the rock of ages and has strength and that we can trust on him and depend upon him. But notice our part in the process, he says, whose mind is stayed, fixed, focused on you. See, that's our part in the process. It's us controlling our thinking. Our part in the process is that we cannot let our mind rule over us. We cannot let our thoughts run down trails and let our mind begin to dictate to us because our mind, boy, it will start to create a terror of fear and confusion and doubt. And I tell you, one of the areas of the greatest warfare that happens spiritually is in the mind. Because the enemy knows he's lost your soul, he's lost your spirit, you're sealed with the Spirit of God. So where do you think the fiery darts of the enemy are fired at? To the mind, right? Remember when Jesus was speaking to Peter on one occasion and Peter, you know, was talking about as the disciples are discussing who do men say that I'm you are the Christ the son of the living God blessed are you Simon Barjona flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you but my father who's in heaven in other words Peter great job you just received a spiritual revelation well Peter's just like you and I right away he thought I got momentum let me keep showing off spiritually so then Jesus started talking about his suffering and and his crucifixion and his death and then Peter thought I'm not going to look like a coward who's not committed to Jesus. And he said, far be it from now, Lord. That will never happen to you, not on my watch. Not on my watch are they going to hurt you or harm you or crucify you. And then Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. For you are not, watch what he says, mindful of the things of God. In other words, Peter, the first thing was a revelation from the Lord. The second thing was a bad idea that Satan just launched through your mind to where you thought you should speak up in resistance that you're going to stop my suffering and my crucifixion, which was completely against the plan of God. It seemed good. It seemed loving. It seemed like Peter was a really committed guy, but it was really Peter's own mind having a wrong thought, and apparently the thought stemmed from Satan because Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. In other words, he was identifying, Peter, what just went on in your mind, that wasn't from God. 
that was a lying voice of the enemy, and he planted that thought in your mind, and you opened your mouth and let it out before you distinguished, wait a minute, that doesn't align with God's word, God's plan, and God's will. And so we have to remember that such an important part as we face things that cause us fear and anxiety and depression and doubt and confusion and the things that agitate us mentally, that our responsibility is to keep our mind fixed upon the Lord. We've got to keep our minds stayed upon the Lord, focus on the Lord, focus on the word of God, because when we do that, the promise is as our mind stays focused on the Lord, the Lord says, just keep your mind on me. Keep your focus on me, who I am and what I can do. And he says, and I'll keep you peaceful. I'll keep you from being overly agitated or mentally derailed or going out of your mind. I'll keep your mind peaceful supernaturally. What a wonderful promise that God's given to us this very kind way to help still our mind when the storms are raging within, but we must keep our mind on him and trust him as the everlasting rock. He says, verse 5, for he brings down those who dwell on high. Again, what about my enemies? What about my enemies? God says, I'll take care of your enemies. The lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The fool shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Again, God can bring down even our enemies, the invaders, those who are coming against us and causing us concern. The way, he says, verse 7, of the just is uprightness. In other words, if we are willing to do what's just, we will walk in a way that is right before the Lord. We take the right path to want to do what is right in relationship with God and do what is upright in relationship with our fellow man. And that works both ways. Something's really wrong if we think, oh, I'm right with God, but you're not right with people. Never forget that. To be upright means to be right with God vertically and to be right with people horizontally at the same time. And those two are not mutually exclusive. Jesus said if we're not right with people, we're not even ready to worship, that we should first go and resolve something because that can be a hindrance even to our worship. And then he says, then come back to the altar and engage in worship. So he says here, the way of the one who wants to live just, to be just in their ways, is uprightness. And why? Because the one we worship is upright. He says, oh, most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. What a beautiful thing. The desire of our soul, he says, is for you, Lord. You know, we have to realize that the very fact that we wanted to come to the house of the Lord tonight wasn't because we just didn't think anything good was on television. It was because God has done something inside of our hearts that have given us a desire to want to be with him, to want to seek him, to spend time with him. That God's changed not only our lives, but he's changed our hearts. That, that, that God, you know, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Often we think that means, oh, if you mean if I really just start really delighting myself and enjoying the Lord, that he's going to start giving me everything I want? No, he's going to give you his desires in your heart. And then you'll know those desires are from the Lord. But as you delight yourself in the Lord and you love the Lord and just love upon the Lord, he puts desires in your heart. And guess what desires he puts in there? For more of him. Yeah. 
for more of his way. And here the, the, the prophet is able to say, Lord, the desire of our soul, it's for your name. We want to see your face, Lord. We want to know you. We want to see your name be glorified and for the remembrance of you. I love how he says this, verse 9. We'll, we'll conclude probably with here. It's a good landing stopping point for sake of time. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, and my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will then learn righteousness. Notice, when God's judgments are in the earth, in other words, when the word of the Lord and the rulership of Jesus is in the earth, he says, then finally the inhabitants in the world will learn how to live righteously, how to live right with God, how to live right with one another when Christ is reigning. But again, how beautiful the indication as Isaiah is expressing there in verse 9, with my soul I've desired you in the night, and my spirit within me I will seek you early. Again, there should be a desire to spend time with God, noticed all throughout the day. You know, there are times when perhaps but we may find ourselves awake in the middle of the night and we think we're having insomnia. I don't know. Maybe it's sometimes that it's not insomnia. Maybe it's just the spirit of the Lord who dwells inside of you prompting you to just talk to the Lord for a few minutes Why it's quiet. <laughs> or to lift up someone in intercession. Or to think about a Bible verse that maybe you read earlier that the Lord just wants you to meditate on for a few minutes and to recognize the Bible says his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And so whether it's in the midst of the night, again, that we're in fellowship with the Lord, but it's also the same thing. He says that within me, I will seek you early. Now, some of you may say, I'm not a morning person. I'm a night person. Well, you're covered in the verse there. You're covered. No legalism here. You can be a morning devos or a night devos person. We're not under the law here. But again, the idea of seeking the Lord early isn't even so much in the sense of early in the morning, and, and I certainly think that can be an applicable thing, and I think that's a wise thing. I think that's a good thing. The idea of seek the Lord early is seek the Lord first, first and foremost, that early before you get going, you say, you know what? Before I get talking to other people, I probably should talk to the Lord first. Before I start reading other things or checking my phone or checking emails or catching up on work or checking social media, maybe I should see what, maybe I should see what God's, I don't even do social media, I'll just say posting. I'm, I'm going to stop right there. I don't even do social media, so I don't know. <laughs> maybe I should get a word from the Lord and see what he's got to say to fill something in my brain that's good. And how wonderful when we seek the Lord early, how different our day goes, Right? And how all through the day we find ourselves walking with him and closing out our evening with him as well. Well, let's stand. We'll